Although we might not fully understand what the self is, many people believe that the brain is central to who we are. It records our memories, it holds our preferences deep within its folds, an electrical spark there, a neuron firing, there are our thoughts. Now, imagine a woman with severe Parkinson's disease. Her name is Jolina. Her tremor started small, but as the years passed, her body began to tremble uncontrollably. Nothing seemed to work. Not medication, not traditional therapies. Covered in sweat from her tremors, she went to see a neurosurgeon. And the neurosurgeon suggested a radical treatment, something that some consider controversial, maybe even a bit scary, implanting an electrode in her brain. This is Spark Dialogue Podcasts. You could find us on the web at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the stories of science and technology and how they're related to our society, history, art, ethics, philosophy, and our lives. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. Have you checked out Spark Dialogue Podcasts on Patreon yet? It's a place where you can join the community of the podcast, show your support, see advanced content, and even become part of the podcast itself. And since Spark Dialogue is new on Patreon, I'm sending a special one-time gift to the first 20 patrons who sign up at the tardigrade level and above. So head over to patreon.com sparkdialogue. You can also find out more information on the website at sparkdialogue.com. Podcasts are free, but it's always great when we have the support of the community that's listening. Hello, my name is Dr. Laura Cabrera. I'm assistant professor of neuroethics at Michigan State University. Laura is a neuroethicist. That means she asks questions about the ethics of all sorts of treatments involving the brain. And neuroethicists do a lot of things uh, because we are exactly at the intersection of bioethics, neuroscience, sometimes even law. And so we do a, a lot of research that touches on the ethical implications of neuroscience and neurotechnology. And we do it from different perspectives. There are neuroethicists that are focusing on very kind of conceptual, just normative part of neuroethics. There's other neuroethicists that focus on more empirical work. So they will do more surveys, focus group, other type of qualitative and deliberative methods of engagement. There be others that are more close to policymaking. We're not constrained by anything. It's very interdisciplinary. So you'll see a lot of uh, neuroethicists embedded in labs or working directly with neuroscientists or with engineers or with policymakers or with journalists. So I think that's one of the things that I really love about neuroethics is interdisciplinary and it reaches different areas. One of the treatments that Laura is especially interested in is deep brain stimulation. This is the type of therapy that was offered to Jolina by her neurosurgeon. It's a powerful and sometimes controversial treatment where the doctor will go and implant an electrode in the brain. This can help severe cases of Parkinson's disease. Deep brain stimulation, or also known as DBS, is a technology where an electrode or two are implanted in the brain. And again, depending on the disorder that is going to be treated, it changes the location of the electrode. Um, and then you have also the second part, which is the battery, which is usually uh, connected in the below the clavicle in the chest. And the implant, the, there's two types, the open loop which is constant stimulation. So that's kind of what most Parkinson patients are getting nowadays, uh, what's most commonly used now. And that means that, again, the implant is constantly sending stimulation to the area of the brain. 
there's another version of DBS, which is called closed-loop DBS, in which the the implant has like a feedback loop, which means that it records uh, some brain signals, and depending on these brain signals, the implant might, you know, stimulate or not stimulate. There are all sorts of other reasons why someone might elect to get deep brain stimulation. It could treat a whole host of other diseases of the mind, and oftentimes it's the patient's last resort. It is currently approved, at least in the U.S., for treatment of tremor and Parkinson's disease. And it's currently under investigation for most psychiatric disorders, with the exception of obsessive-compulsive disorder. For that one, there's a humanitarian device exemption. Uh, but for all the other ones, there's, there's clinical trials trying to really understand you know, if it's safe or effective for these particular purposes. This electrode is implanted in the brain during a brain surgery. It can then be connected to a small energy source, like a battery, that can be switched off and on. For the electrode, the electrode is, you know, once it's implanted, it's, it remains there. The only thing uh, that patients have to go back to have replaced from time, you know, a couple of years after the initial operation is the battery. So depending, again, if you have closed loop or open loop, open loop the brain stimulation, the battery might last only you know, a couple of years or 10 years, again, depending on how much simulation you're getting. And then patients have to go, again, to have surgery, but not open brain surgery, only to the chest to have that battery removed and replaced. Applying electricity to the brain can have all sorts of consequences. One interesting thing to note is that since the brain is also the seat of memories, a brain implant can also improve what we remember. So would this be used for people who like, let's say, have amnesia or something like that? Or is it just people who, like a normal run-of-the-mill person who wants to remember things that they might have forgotten? So there are clinical trials for treatment um, of Alzheimer. So at this point, it's just very hypothetical whether this might be beneficial for treating memory. So one of the main things was because there was a study, and it was for obesity, so nothing to do really with memory, but one of the things that they saw was that the patient actually had better recollection um, after he had DBS. So that's kind of what triggered that, oh, maybe deep brain stimulation could help to improve memory. But that hasn't really been, you know, something that is, has been tested enough to have a certainty that DBS is going to help with memory, to help someone that is already healthy and have just, you know, more memory or be, have a better memory. Uh, but it's, it's out there, the, the thought for some people that, oh, maybe one day we'll know the circuits that, to improve memory and would be able to not only treat disorders of memory, but also be able to improve memory of health individuals. Deep brain stimulation could help people that have forgotten their memories. But could anyone use it? If a person with normal memory capacity used deep brain stimulation to be able to remember things they would normally forget, this could potentially lead them down the path of transhumanism, acquiring abilities beyond that of normal humans today. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of this question, especially, as you said, in the transhumanist literature about, you know, whether someone might become a transhuman just because they have a memory capacity that we haven't seen before in the history of humankind. But there's been other interesting cases. For example, there is this 
people that have these amazing memories and they can remember a lot, a lot, a lot of, of things that most people can't. And they complain about, you know, like they it, they have challenges because they they cannot leave the moment. They're constantly thinking about the past, about things that they remember. Um, and so I don't think necessarily more memory is a good thing. And so maybe if you, I don't know, if you connect, if you're able to have like a hard drive connected so that you can store everything and then have a way to, you know, access it where it doesn't become bothersome for the for the person that may be a good thing i don't i don't think that's going to make someone more of herself or himself uh but i think that's an empirical question we just don't know whether someone might be able to really handle of that much information it'd be important for us to think about why do we want more memory sometimes we spend our days in in, in ways that our own technologies make make us forget things because now we you know we make our computers our phones they they store phone numbers for us so we don't have to memorize them anymore so in a way we have shift things that our memories used to do to our external technologies so i think we should think as a, as a society why would we want individuals to have more capacity of memory what would be the benefit um and i guess many people might have different answers to that. Uh, but as an individual, I think we already have ways in which we can discharge some of the, the burden of memorizing things to our external technology. And, and we don't really need to have an enhanced biological memory for us to feel that we have, you know, memories of who we are. We have pictures that we can watch, we can videos from the past. A specific type of deep brain stimulation is PEI. Imagine that, instead of using medication, you used electricity. These are commonly used for psychiatric disorders. A PEI is a psychiatric electroceutical intervention. Nowadays, there's actually a couple of articles that talk about electroceuticals. So in the past, we talk about pharmaceuticals. Uh, but now there's this big wave of interventions that use electricity as the, the way of treatment. So in this case, an electroceutical would be an intervention that uses electricity as uh, the way to bring a therapeutic outcome. How effective is it? How effective is it, and especially in connection to other types of ways to treat it, like through medication? There's different types of PEI. So for example, if we are talking about deep brain stimulation, which is a type of PEI, but it's still under clinical investigation, so which means that we still don't know how effective it's going to be. And the big clinical trials that have, have been out there trying to, to answer the question of effectiveness and safety, they just haven't given us the, the answer for that. They actually have, most of them have uh, either negative outcomes that it didn't really prove that it was sufficient enough to approve it, or sometimes uh, there was a big one that got, a big clinical trial that got, it was canceled. So if we talk about DBS, it's a PI that is, is not there. It's, it's still needs, we still need more um, evidence to know whether it's going to be effective or not. But there is one type of PEI that's understood very well. It's called electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT. For people with severe depression, this therapy has actually been shown to work quite well. These people suffer from depression so debilitating that they could no longer carry on with normal everyday life. They were beyond the help of medication. During ECT, small currents of electricity are passed through the brain, creating a short mini-seizure. So electroconvulsive therapy, by definition, is also um, 
electroceutical that is used in psychiatry and which is one of the interventions that, you know, for patients with clinical depression is one of the most beneficial treatments out there. And, and yet, one of the things that, you know, really intrigued me is that in spite of many years of research and psychiatrists trying to, to tell patients and the public that it is relatively safe and is efficient, there's still a big um, stigma and fear around electroconvulsive therapy. But it is, it has shown to be, um, at least in the psychiatry world, it is seen as a very efficient technology in terms of helping with depression. Why is there so much fear associated with ECT when it has been proven to work? Why do some people refuse to get treatment, even though it might be the most effective treatment out there? In the past, we have been talking about, you know, um, electroconvulsive therapy. And then some people have done some research about uh, regarding transcranial magnetic stimulation. And some other people have done research talking about TBS. But now there's not really too much research about, well, do they have things in common? Do people really fear all electrocyticals because they're using electricity? And I would say that just based on some of, you know, the literature out there, I don't think that's the case. I think people have still more fear connected to electroconvulsive therapy than connected to deep brain stimulation. And I think maybe is one of the reasons at least for that is that electroconvulsive therapy have had a very negative portrayal in, you know, novels and movies and, and TV, whereas deep brain stimulation is still kind of new. It hasn't really had any negative portrayal in the popular eye. And it is people sometimes know of other patients with, for example, Parkinson, where it has been very efficient. You know, the, the changes that you see of someone with Parkinson and, and tremoring, and then when it's, the implant is off versus when it's on, it's very dramatic. So I guess people think about that in terms of like, oh yeah, this, this seems to be very efficient. And they translate that into, therefore, DVS in psychiatry probably is as efficient. When we still don't know the answer for that, but I think that's what makes people more comfortable with one type of PIs and not others. Honestly, ECT sounds scary, but it was really dealt a debilitating blow from its portrayal in the media. Remember One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? In the movie based on the book, Jack Nicholson's character, Randall McMurphy, received ECT, not as a therapy, but as a punishment. In that very memorable scene, Randall is tied down to a table, Conductant is spread on his head. He's given a bite guard to prevent him from biting down on his own tongue. Electrodes are placed on either side of his head, and his seizure begins. There's certainly other portrayals of ECT, and most of them are, are just negative, crude, barbaric. How do you then go about making sure that patients and stakeholders fully understand the reality versus the, for lack of a better word, myth behind this? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think one wants to believe that, you know, as long as you expose them to more information, that might help with changing attitudes. But I mean, there's so many things. And so, for example, I've carried so interviews with general public asking them about ECT. And some people, they know that sometimes maybe their feeling towards ECT, um, towards electroconvulsive therapy might be, you know, not accurate, but that's kind of what they've been exposed. So they they still kind of struggling a little bit with, well, I don't know anything else. So I think we have been lacking more information 
um, to the general public or to patients. I think even patients, sometimes they go with fear to start these type of therapies. But in addition to that, I think we need to do something else. I, I'm still not quite sure what that something else is. And that's, again, part of what me and my team are trying to find out, like what other type of things would be important to to tell patients when we're talking about these interventions that might make them see these interventions for what they are and not with their subjective fear that the media might create. Or sometimes it's a hype, which is also problematic. Even though there are some situations where DBS is very effective, we also need to remember we're dealing with the brain, and the brain is a very complex organ, one that we don't fully understand. There have been instances where after deep brain stimulation, the personality of the patient actually changed. It was a patient with deep brain stimulation that initially he he didn't like uh, Johnny Cash. He liked other type of music, very, very, very different type of music. But then after he got his implant, then he started developing this kind of likeness for music of Johnny Cash. And... They they wanted to test if it was because of the stimulation, and so they when they turn off the stimulation, he would kind of go back to its previous likings, and then when they turn it on, it will the Johnny Cash would come back again. The stimulator was doing something, right? We just probably don't know what. Sometimes the perception of the patient was also altered in really strange ways. And then the other case, it's, um, it's actually not a, a very known case, but uh, one of my colleagues found it in, in one of the, in the literature, is that this patient, when he was in the operating room uh, having the implant, at some point when they were testing, he saw the, the neurosurgeons in his mind, they were converted to this kind of like, uh, I think there was some Italian cookers or something like that, um, chefs. And that's also very weird. How the, the visual perception of what he was seeing in the operating room changed when he had the stimulation on. Now, these are not cases that are super common. These are very rare cases. But because they're so dramatic in a way, there's you know, a lot of things that can be talked about when analyzing them. One of the really frightening side effects, I suppose, for the threat to the identity of a person and how person's self might actually change from this kind of therapy. So how does that happen? Do we really understand what's going on there? No, I guess, unfortunately, we, I mean, we don't really know how the, the therapy itself works, right? So we still, scientists are still trying to understand what are we changing to, that creates the, the positive treatment in a way, or therapeutic outcome. So in some situations, for example, when you have, when you're treating someone with addiction and you know that you're stimulating areas of the brain that are connected to reward, I mean, it's not impossible to imagine that, you know, sometimes maybe you can create something that makes that patient to go really hyperactive or or hyper euphoric type of thing because you're stimulating areas that are really connected to that type of expressions of the self. But we still don't know because, so if you look at the number of patients that have been implanted in a certain brain region, not all of them will have the same outcome. So then that creates, a, I guess, a conundrum of what is that makes some patients to have these changes of, of who they are, the, the type of things that they 
used to relate to core features of, of who they, they were before they were stimulated. There are times when the implant even affects how the person will act. People have been reported to do some things that they would never do as their old selves. This was reported, I think, in a Dutch paper. And it's a case of a patient that after stimulation, I think he became like a type of like an exhibitionist. When the action of the person is changing, it becomes an ethical question. Should we use the implant in this case? And he was a, a Parkinson patient, so he was given the choice of, okay, do we take your stimulator off so you don't have these things that are, well, are you, we would need to lock you up if you continue doing this type of behavior? Or would you prefer the stimulator to continue to be on and then you have to be in a lock-up type of situation? Uh, and the patient decided to, you know, that he wanted the stimulation to continue to go on. That to me raises a lot of questions about, first of all, did you ask the patient when that question of regarding the implant, when the implant itself was on or when it was off? Because that might already change maybe some of potential responses. And so that brings a whole of issues that I think the field is trying to answer regarding, you know, if people preferences change when the stimulation is on, you know, who do we listen to when it's about, you know, continuation of, of treatment or explantation of the, of, of the implant or other things? Are we supposed to consider the voice of, of the patient when the stimulation is on or when it's off? Being an exhibitionist is one thing, but what if their implant makes their actions change so drastically that they commit a crime? What if they become a thief? or even more drastic, a murderer. What if this was to happen? Would the person still be held responsible? Or could they legitimately say, my implant made me do it? Me and a colleague, we published a little article on that because is, was it, is it me or was it my, was my implant responsible? And I guess the problem is that sometimes it's not only the, you know, maybe there's a malfunction of the implant and therefore, you know, you end up committing something that is criminal. It could be, you know, that the battery ran off or a cable was degraded and broke. Or it could be that, you know, someone hacked into your brain implant. And that's also a very scary scenario because now we have all this technology that is interconnected, but that also creates some threats that are scary in a way. It raises interesting questions about the autonomy of the person and the definition of the self and even about free will and everything like this. And so does this give us any insights to what the self is and if we should be tampering with potentially technology that could potentially change the self? So I think there's been, uh, previous to this, there's been other research that have had some, shed some light into, you know, issues of, of um, free will. But I think this keeps showing how different and how important the brain is really related to the things that we consider as core of who we are. So related to, to the self. Now, in some of the cases where these treatments are used or where these uh, technologies are used are cases where people are so desperate. And so that makes me think a little bit more about it be a little bit unfair to negate this potential treatment to patients that I feel like I have nothing else to lose, you know? I, I have tried everything and I just, I'm not functional, I, but I, I need help. And this type of treatments could be beneficial. So I think even if there is 
the potential for changing the self. First of all, the, the potential change doesn't need to be negative all the time. It could be a positive change. That I think is, will be welcome. And then I guess with all different types of interventions, there's always the risk of side effects and unwanted side or unwanted adverse effects. So, and this, for example, reminds me that I have interviewed a couple of patients where um, these were Parkinson patients, and I think I asked something about you know changes to self, and the patient said to me, "Well, you know, I really don't think too much about my implant changing myself because I already saw changes of myself when I was taking medication." So there are other interventions that already change people in important ways. So it's not just in interventions that are brain implants. All types of treatments have side effects. Are the side effects of deep brain stimulation too extreme for it to be used? Right now, at least with some forms of deep brain stimulation, this comes down to a personal preference. And people have to seriously think about whether or not this is the right course of treatment for themselves. Because well, I should ask, you know, are they safe? How much research has taken place before they approve these type of interventions? Like sometimes not even animal models type of research has happened. And they just go first in human and and sometimes people don't don't know about these things. And so the level of risk that they are exposing themselves is higher. Uh, I think they should also know about, you know, potential side effects that are might be really that might be rare. But that I think if you still want to do give informed consent, you should know about even these rare potential side effects. Like, you know, if you might have de- developed different type of preferences, you know, maybe the percentage of that happening is really, really tiny. But I think you still should be aware that that's a potential a possibility. I think people should also ask, uh, you know, maybe some a, a lot of the patients that I've interviewed, they went with the in their minds it was like oh well i'm gonna get the brain implant and then that's it i don't have to take medications i just can you know the implant will take care of everything and that's not the reality so i think uh, we have to really address the expectations sometimes patients are likely to still have to take you know medication regime maybe not as many medications but they probably still have to take some medication in some cases you have to tell them that you know after a couple of years they have to go and have their battery change so, so there are things that sometimes people just think it's like, you know, oh, brain implant, and then I forget about everything else. But So no, there's still things that have to be considered. As a society as a whole, we also have to ask, what are the limitations of deep brain stimulation? Treating Parkinson's or Alzheimer's is one thing, but it's completely another to say that deep brain stimulation should be used for people who are psychopaths or people who are habitually violent. In these cases, would these people even have a choice as to whether or not they received therapy? How do we want these interventions to be used, right? Like in the past, for example, when the, there were some proposals of using this type of or different type of psychiatric interventions to treat violence. I mean, that was seen as a very historical background there in terms of some people thought that that was the way to go, that violence wasn't you know, something that we could treat. And then there was the anti-psychiatry movement kind of saying, no, we shouldn't go with these biological treatments. And I think now we, there's some people that might be kind of going back to that idea of, you know, maybe we can treat psychopaths with deep brain stimulation. But again, I think this is, and as a society, we should be asking, we don't even understand the circuits that make a psychopath a psychopath. So why are we really treating? Are we just making it convenient for us not to have to deal with these type of individuals? 
Deep brain stimulation has a lot of promise, but it comes with loads of ethical questions. Trying to understand how the brain works in terms of circuits, it has so much benefit in terms of trying to, you know, just bombard the brain and, and the body with chemicals that just are not as, they, they're not a target type of therapy. But with that comes a lot of responsibility of how we use these interventions once we have more understanding about how efficient and safe they are. There's still a lot we don't understand. And in the meantime, it can provide an amazing amount of insight into how our brains work, and perhaps even insight into who we are. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find us on the web at sparkdialogue.com. Thanks for joining us, and see us in two weeks for another episode. And remember that you can become even more involved in the podcast and see advanced content on Patreon. Some of the background music you heard is produced by me. Others are clips from Dream on This Side by Evan Chu, Night Rain by Airtone, The Descent and Bushwick Tarantella Loop by Kevin McLeod, and Asking Questions by Raphael Crux. More information about these songs can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.